Reclaiming Identity, sharing stories of struggle, pride, and redemption in reconnecting with our heritage. Hi, I'm Drora. And I'm Dahlia. And we're bringing you Reclaiming Identity as part of the ASF Institute of Jewish Experience. Do you feel a part of the Jewish story? Is your family what pops up when people think of Jews? At Reclaiming Identity, we celebrate and explore the greater Jewish experience. We encourage you to tell your story and take pride in your heritage as it is a part of your identity. Listen to other people's stories, ask questions, be curious, and reclaim your identity. Chacham Eliabadi is a medical doctor certified in the U.S., and today he is the Senior Rabbi of the Council of the Jewish Community in the United Arab Emirates, as well as the head of the ASF Council of Sephardic Sages. Born in Lebanon, he has maintained a pride and commitment to his Jewish heritage within the context of the greater Jewish world. He has also maintained the importance of Jews of Arab lands as key bridges between the Muslim world and the Jewish world. Here is my interview with Rabbi Abadi. So uh, I was born in Beirut, Lebanon. Uh, my parents were Syrian refugees as uh, they had to escape Syria after the partition plan decision by the United Nations General Assembly on November 29th, uh, 1947. The next three days were known as the days of rage by uh, the Arab street that took place in over 10 Arab countries going from Morocco all the way to Syria and Iraq. As my parents lived in Aleppo, Syria, there were uh, those three days of rage were uh, catastrophic to the Jewish community. They, of course, entered synagogues, looted them, burned them, burned uh, Torah scrolls, uh, holy, holy books. They entered into Jewish businesses. They burned them. They killed and maimed uh, people. They entered into homes. My, uh, my mother, as uh, they were living right next door to the great synagogue, she saw how they, were, they entered the synagogue and how they uh, took the Torah scroll out and threw them onto the floor and holy books and started burning them. And then they, she started seeing that they were climbing into their own home uh, where they lived. And so, uh, thank God, there was a, a back door to the home. She grabbed my older uh, three siblings and told um, my father, we have to leave, otherwise we will be next. And they escaped and they left. And basically they left first to the home of my grandparents and then they left the country completely. Although it took longer time than immediately because they had to escape, they had to hide, so on and so forth. But eventually they, uh, they were able to, uh, to escape my mother first with my uh, three older siblings uh, and then my father later on, who had his own dangerous adventure as he uh, escaped uh, Syria through the border with Lebanon. But before that time, did they feel any um, difference from the Muslims that were there? Did they have decent relationships with them or? They had decent relationship, but there was always a, a some sort of, you know, respect them and, and suspect them, so to speak, uh, because it all depended on who the leader was of the country or the leader of the town. Some leaders were benevolent, and so the Jews lived uh, comfortably and respectfully, and uh, they earned a living, and they had a good relationship with their neighbors. And when the leader was uh, a tyrant, not a benevolent, or did not like Jews, so therefore, that's the feeling that he imparted upon his population. And therefore, those in the population that did not like Jews took advantage of that and they, and they, uh, you know, they mistreated the Jews. It all depended really on the leader at that time. 
So when your parents spoke about Khaleb, what, was it uh, positive or was it, or did they never speak about it? Well, and of course, they spoke nostalgically about Halab, uh, the beautiful Jewish community, the traditions, how people lived, the introduction of modernity. They spoke about that. And uh, so they were nostalgic about the community itself. But about what they saw during those three days, kind of, um, you know, it painted a, a general picture of, uh, of persecution for the Jews in, in Aleppo. Uh, and uh, it reminded them of certain events that took place uh, before. Uh, of course, you know, during the very famous Damascus affair, my parents were not alive yet. It was 50 years before they were born. Uh, however, you know, uh, there, were, there were certain events in history that also, even though it's called the Damascus affair, but it occurred in many Arab countries in the Middle East, including Aleppo. So um, they always uh, remembered certain events that took place, either uh, a neighbor that did not like the Jews or a business customer or, or a judge that did not like the Jews. So they always remembered certain situations uh, that uh, were unpleasant. All because those three days of rage kind of, for them, he left the impression of, of life in an Arab country. Although I, I do believe that it wasn't like that all the time. But there were ups and downs. Again, it all depending on the, on the leader. My, my mother said, I will never go back to any Arab country after these days. My father was willing to remain in Syria after those three days. And my mother said, no way, I will never remain what I saw with my eyes during that, those days, I will never remain in an Arab country. Had she been alive today, I would bring her, I would have brought her here to Dubai and seen the beauty of this country and of this society. Uh, but I probably will have to convince her because I, I had organized a tour of Syria and Lebanon in 2011. And I had asked her to come with me and she was very, very reluctant and hesitant to come. She, uh, she had a bad experience, a very bad experience. And she kind of uh, was traumatized, so to speak, with that experience. So at the end, we could not make the trip because the war, the, the civil war in Syria began just two months before we were supposed to travel there and we had to cancel the whole, uh, the whole tour. But my mother was very, very reluctant to, to accept to come. And yet you moved to Lebanon. Well, uh, Lebanon uh, in 1949-50 was, uh, even before, was under French mandate. Lebanon was known as the Switzerland of the Middle East, Beirut as the, as the Paris of the Middle East. So uh, Lebanon was a safe haven, was the closest country to Syria, and they had no other place to go because uh, they were refugees, they had no passports. They had to escape Syria to a place that was much more tolerant and accepting. And the French were there, so therefore kind of their, their civil rights were, were guaranteed and protected in Lebanon. They could have escaped to Turkey, but um, they didn't. Again, because Turkey at that time was not uh, a safe haven, uh, but Lebanon was. So you you said you had three siblings who were born in Syria. You were born in Lebanon? I was born in Lebanon, yes. So can you tell us a little bit about how it was growing up there? Well, so uh, of course my, my parents had several more children before me. I'm the last. I was the last one. I was born over 12 years after they left. So in the 60s, uh, Lebanon was the Switzerland of the Middle East. Beirut was the Paris of the Middle East. The Riviera of Beirut uh, 
everybody would say it looked like the Côte d'Azur or the, the French Riviera with beautiful beaches, modern uh, clubs, uh, discotheques. Not that I saw them, I was very young for that. But you hear and you read and you see sometimes now videos of those things. It was a beautiful uh, Riviera, as I said, with beaches, uh, café trottoir, you know, outdoor restaurants, ballrooms. It was, it was indeed a French European city at that time. So growing there, we uh, lived freely. We did not display our Judaism in public because you never know who was that person who did not like Jews or who uh, blamed the Jews for Israel and so on and so forth. We were kind of protected by the government. We were known as Jews, but we did not display it publicly. Uh, our names could give it, uh, and the way we speak could have uh, made people know, but uh, it wasn't a public display of that. I uh, remember uh, very well the Six-Day War, you know, vaguely what, what, what happened. I remember my parents and all the Jewish neighbors were extremely concerned about that. They would gather, you know, every night after their business day at home and they would talk, they would try to listen to shortwave radios and, and programs to see what was happening. I remember very well having to uh, to put uh, blue sheets on the windows to to paint the light bulbs in blue, and uh, we were concerned to leave to leave the house. So we almost did not leave the house unless it was really necessary. Uh, the government promised the Jewish community at that time it was the the Falange, the Jemayel family was was in control. They came to the Jewish community. I remember to the synagogue and they uh, assured the Jewish community of the protection that they had nothing to worry about. And indeed, they stationed two tanks at the one at the entrance, one at the exit of the Jewish neighborhood, what's known as the Wadi Abu Jmil, and and there was constant police uh, patrol around the Jewish neighborhood. I saw that as a protection. Others may have seen it as a as a watching the Jewish community, but I think it was a protection more than anything else, because they knew somebody from the population who might be very uh, extreme, very radical, or, or uh, very upset at the results of the war, and they might attack the Jewish people. I remember very well on a Shabbat, uh, we did not live in the Jewish neighborhood. We lived like maybe five, six, seven blocks away. And uh, we were going, my, my father's synagogue was in the Jewish uh, quarter and the Wadi Abu Jmil. It was a new synagogue that was built in 1965-66. It was like the last and newest synagogue built in Lebanon before the Jewish community started really leaving. We were trying to enter the Jewish neighborhood. It was on a Shabbat trying to go to Knis, to the synagogue. And of course, there was a police uh, at the entrance and at the exit. So anybody entering the neighborhood had to show documentation. So they asked my father, who he was wearing a hat, you know, rabbi's hat. They asked him for ID. He told them, you know, it's Shabbat. We don't carry. I don't have my ID with, with me. He said, so what are you going to do? He says, you know, I'm the hacham of, of, of the knees. Uh, they said, oh, you're the hacham. Faddal. They really saluted him and, and we passed. So I, I remember vaguely that, uh, not vaguely, very vividly, actually, that, that, that situation. I also, as I said, remember they were very concerned about the war because they were hearing, and you know, I was hearing from my parents and my, you know, the neighbors and my cousins and my aunts, and that they were hearing all these stations uh, describing how they are destroying Israel, destroying the air force, the military. They have conquered the lands of Israel. They were extremely, extremely concerned because they felt if Israel loses, then we would be next. Uh, I mean, look what they did in 1948. Uh, and 
they, they will do the same thing now, uh, you know, and worse. So, um, so we're concerned, but only at the last day on the sixth day, finally, they were able to hear Israel radio speak and basically declaring victory and all of that. So uh, on one hand, we were happy about that because we said Israel still exists and God forbid there is something that will, that will come and rescue us. On the other hand, we were even more concerned <laughs> because we are afraid that now they're going to take revenge on us for, for, for what happened in Israel. That nothing of the sort happened. Us meaning Lebanese. Uh, us Lebanese, yeah, yeah. You know, Lebanese, Jewish, uh, Jewish, uh, yeah. So, but nothing of the sort happened. They, there was no recrimination. There was no uh, attacks on the Jewish community that I remember. There wasn't. And so uh, that passed. But that, that was an experience I remember. Uh, six days of, of nervousness, concern, worries. And, you know, we try not to leave the house. And whenever we had to leave, we looked uh, behind us to make sure nobody's coming to attack us. So it seems like you soaked in a lot of what was going on around you, um, which was also a very tense time. Um, but what would your like day-to-day -day look like there? What was the Jewish community like in terms of schools, in terms of synagogues? So the Jewish community at its height, uh, the Jewish community may have had 20,000 people in Lebanon. And that could have been around in the 50s, um, starting from 1956. Uh, and most of the Jewish population were Syrians, either Syrians from Aleppo, Syrians from Damascus, Syrians from Homs, from Kiles, from Antab, from many of the outlying areas in the border of, of Turkey and, and, and Syria. Most of them had escaped because of 1948. And so that's the majority. The, the Lebanese Lebanese were a minority, believe it or not. And uh, real Lebanese, uh, there's a famous saying that there's only three real authentic Lebanese families. Hana, Mana, and Dana. The Hanans, the Man, and the Danas. These are the authentic Lebanese. Now, in Seda, Sidon, there was a Jewish community, and you have there the Nigris, the Diwans, the Zaytunes also are believed to be, uh, you know, Lebanese for, for, for decades, if not centuries. But many of those Lebanese were actually Syrian, maybe from Damascus, that emigrated even in the early century, much before 1948, because Syria and Lebanon was one conglomerate uh, territory, which Syria until today believes the same, it's, it's, it's the greater Syria. And so um, the majority of the population were Syrian, uh, Aleppo mostly, and Damascus. So many of them used Lebanon only as a transition country. And from there, they went to Brazil, many of them, Canada, New York, Mexico, Argentina, uh, and some of them, of course, to Israel. But uh, yes, so at its height, they had maybe 20,000 Jews. In the 60s, by then, probably they had 10,000 Jews. Jews started immigrating, I said. It, it was continuous immigration, but en masse after 1967. First, there was one after 1958. There was a, a short-lived civil war in Lebanon. It lasted less than six months with the entry of the sixth float of the American, uh, sixth fleet, excuse me, of the American Navy. They stopped it. And so since then, many of the Jews started leaving because they recognized Lebanon was not, is not a very stable country. But it was stability until uh, 1974. But after 1967, again, many of the Jewish community left. But every week we would hear this family, that family is leaving. And there was a continuous uh, uh, emigration from Lebanon.
There were three Jewish schools. There was the Alliance, which was the, the largest and the biggest. There was the Talmud Torah, which was uh, kind of in between. And there was uh, the Ecole Nouvelle. The Ecole Nouvelle, where my father was the principal and the rabbi, that was known in Arabic as Madrist al-Halabiyyi. That's where the Syrian Jews, the, the Aleppo went. It was a very traditional uh, school, uh, boys and girls, but they, they taught uh, religion, they taught tradition, and they taught regular. My father was the principal. He taught Talmud and Torah, but at the same time, he also taught mathematics. He was a, uh, as an accountant also by profession. He taught mathematics, arithmetic. So it was a, it was a school, boys and girls together. But it, they taught religion, tradition very, very uh, strongly. So that I was in that school at the beginning. Then in 1968, the school closed after the Six-Day War. Many of the Syrians really left, most of them to Brazil, some of them to Mexico. And then I went to the Talmud Torah, and I was in the Talmud Torah for two years. And then that school closed because there were no more... Uh, no more students and then uh, and the, the the direct the principal of that school was uh, Rabbi Yaakov Atiyeh who he left to Israel in 1969 so uh, 70 and and then I moved to the Alliance I was there for one year and then we left there were probably over 20 synagogues from uh, big ones the Magen Avram is the biggest one the second biggest one was my father's, Midrash Eliyahu was known. And then there was another one, also slightly big. And then the rest were small synagogues. Some of them, as they call in, in the Yiddish, uh, shtibels. You know, they were small places that people started Minyan next door to their home and became, became a synagogue. So there were probably maybe around 20 or so of all the synagogues. Of course, there was a Jewish butcher, kosher butcher. There was kosher cheese, kosher meat, kosher... Are they wine. all prayed in the same uh, style, the same Chalabi style? Mostly, uh -huh. mostly. There was, uh, of course, there was a Lebanese synagogue. There was even a Spaniel synagogue, a Sephardim from Turkey that lived. There was very, very small, but it was known as the Espanol, which were the Sephardim from Spain. There was even an Ashkenaz uh, uh, synagogue. I presume they prayed in Ashkenaz Nosah. I uh, was never there. It was also very, very small. And then there was just regular Syrian Lebanese synagogues. So you were there for, um, for your formative years. And then um, we know that there was the, the new transition where you had to get out again and you ended up in Mexico. So the community in Mexico is much bigger, I believe, right? My father had already three sisters living in Mexico since the 1940s or 30s even. They had left to the new world from Syria even before the, the, you know, the problems that occurred in Syria because everybody knew Syria was also very unstable. Um, and so he had them. Then uh, my father had also a lot of cousins uh, that had left there in the early 1900, 1905, 1907. You know, what happened was after the Suez Canal was built, all the great business that occurred in Aleppo under Turkish uh, Ottoman Empire, the Silk Road passed through Aleppo. So all the import, export, textiles and everything that was going to China from Europe passed through the Silk Road in Aleppo. That's where most of the Jews made made their money. My grandfather, uh, from my father's side, had a textile uh, business, import-export. My grandfather, from uh, the my mother's side, also had a textile. He used to import textile from Manchester. He, in fact, lived in Manchester for several years. This again in the 1901, 1902. 
And so that, that was the business, <clears throat> excuse me, that was the business. But once the Can Suez Canal was built and the Ottoman Empire, Empire uh, began its decadence, so economy was not no longer good. So uh, many of the Jews uh, that lived in Aleppo and in Damascus in Syria and that whole area started emigrating in the early 1900s, 1904, 1905, 1907, 1910. So my grandmother, with her brothers, my, uh, my father's mother, with her brothers left, she was a teenager, even younger, when they left to Mexico in 1905, 1906. And they lived in Mexico, so they became part of the community. And then, and then my grandmother left uh, Mexico and went back. She got married in Mexico. She did not have children. And so in those days, they always blamed the women. She was married for several years, maybe 10 years. And then the, 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 the husband said, you know, I want to have children. So he divorced her. And in those days, a divorced woman is not a, uh, is not a uh, merchandise uh, that people wanted to marry. Unfortunately, that's how it was seen those days. Yeah, for sure. Right? And, uh, and so she said, you know what, let me go back to my country of birth. And maybe I have a better luck there. So on her way wow. to Syria, she stopped in Egypt, possibly for one or two years even. She had friends or cousins there. And then she went to Syria. When she arrived in Syria in the 1919, uh, and she was by then probably 31, 32, maybe 33, or maybe slightly more, because she was married already 10 years, and she had lived, and right. she lived in Egypt for two years. So she was in her early to mid-30s. So, of course, even at that time, even if you never got married, and you're a woman at 30-something, you're already you're old. old. <laughs> And so there was this uh, very, uh, you know, society, high society gentleman whose name was Jacob Yaakov Abadi, who was a businessman, rich, well-to-do, respected in the community, whose wife passed away and he had already 10 children. And so uh, they told her, why don't you marry him? You live well. He's a well-to-do, respected, high Take society. Take care of his kids. <laughs> Take care of his little kids. And you'll have a life, you know, and you'll be taken care of. Look, and he is a, you know, a great person, businessman, respected, so on and so forth. Marry him. And he was uh, probably, a, uh, he was maybe in his late 40s or early 50s, in fact. And she was in her mid to early 30s. So there was, I would say, probably 20 years in between. So she married him. Lo and behold, my father was born a year later. <laughs> The problem wasn't with her. <laughs> That's when they realized that the problem was not with her and that she had <laughs> four children after that. So she had wow. four children. They don't know. That's, that's an interesting story, but she was in Mexico that time. So my father had all his uncles and uh, first cousins and second cousins from the early 1900s, all in half of the community in Mexico practically were my cousins. One of them came to Mexico in the early 60s, 64, to visit his cousin, my father. And so he came, he saw my brother, who was at that time a teenager, 16, 17. He says, well, what are you doing here in an Arab country? Come back with me, make a new life and this. Anyhow, this is dangerous. Come to Mexico, it's a beautiful country, so on and so forth. That's exactly what happened. My, my brother, maybe less than a year later, he immigrated to Mexico. They had to ask for him because we were all refugees. 
So they had right. to, 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 you know, as family reunification, asylum, so on and so forth. So he got there, he got married. And so we were always, okay, we're going to go move to Mexico. My father had sisters. We have, a, I have, a, you know, as a son now, all the cousins. So that's where we're planning to move. But we couldn't leave because again, we did not have a passport. We were refugees because in Lebanon, even though you were born there, if your grand, great grandfather, 10 generation behind you was a refugee, you're still a refugee. We, we were never given Lebanese. And you obviously didn't have your Syrian passport either. We didn't have a Syrian passport either. Uh, and so uh, we were refugees, even though we were born there. So we could not leave anywhere because unless a country was going to accept us uh, as, a, as an asylum, uh, as economic asylum or political asylum or basically humanitarian gesture. So no country wanted to do that until my brother was there. So Mexico, it was taking its sweet time. Once Yasser Arafat and his uh, guerrilla came to Lebanon, after Black September, that's September 1970, uh, when there was a civil war in Jordan. King Hussein at that time killed maybe 20,000 of, of Arafat's followers. Yeah. He expelled them from that country, and no other, no Arab country will accept them. Right. Basically, Lebanon was forced, being the smallest Arab country, the, the weakest Arab country. They were bullied into it. <laughs> exactly, by, by the Arab League. So Lebanon had no choice, but they accepted them. And once Arafat came, we started seeing protests in the street, rallies uh, with guerrilla terrorists, basically wearing khaki with their Kalashnikovs or whatever weapons they had. The Jewish community was even more concerned than before because they knew that uh, we're dealing with guerrillas, with terrorists, that they could attack the Jewish community. And so more people started leaving from 69, 70, a lot, a lot. It was every week there were 10 families leaving, no longer one or two or three families, there were at least 10 families leaving every week, again, to many countries in the world. So one day we wake up, I think it was a Sunday, uh, and the picture of my father and the other two rabbis, they were formed the Bedin of Lebanon, was plastered all over the mosques as big posters. And it was in an article in a magazine one of the famous magazines of uh, of Lebanon, you know, like Paris Match, but it was the Lebanese magazine, with a whole article written, you know, basically speaking about the Jewish community, and they make money, and they go to Israel, and they support the Zionists, and in the caption under the picture of my father and the other two rabbis, well, these are the Zionist agents that uh -huh. uh, you know, help Jews escape Syria and go to Israel, and so on and so forth, or so they spy for Israel. Of course, it was not true, but my my father and the other two rabbis were scared. You know, when when you have your picture, yeah, in the mosques around, <laughs> around in a magazine with a caption like that saying you're a yeah. Zionist agent, you basically have a target on your face. Basically, yeah. anybody who could see you and shoot you and kill you, they'll do it with impunity. You're an enemy of the state. Of course, they were they went into hiding, were afraid to leave their house for several days, if not weeks, until the government again reassured them, we will protect you, don't you worry, nothing will happen. So they started leaving. So my mother took that article with the picture and sent it to my brother in Mexico and told him, either you get us out of here or we are dead. Right. <laughs> yeah. So you better do something. So he took that picture with the article to the government in Mexico and pleaded with them 
and within six months. Six we months, able, that's a long time. <laughs> it was, yes, it was. It, this article appeared, you know, around oh. September or so, October 1970. And we left after, right after, we, we left in August, but news was, it was, I remember very well, it was very, very emotional moment. Erev Pesach, right? Oh, wow. the, day, the eve of Passover, uh, we received a telegram. Uh, you know, in those days, there was no texting, there was no uh, emails yeah. or anything like that. <laughs> It was Telegram, and the Telegram you paid per letter, uh, an extravagant amount of money. So it was very, uh, you know, sure. <laughs> something, something like, you're free at last, welcome to Mexico. You know, some, you know. Uh, so that was Erev Pesach. To me and to my family, it was very, very significant. It was like, it's our Passover, it's our Pesach, it's our faith. Yeah. So started thinking, imagine how the Jews in Egypt 3,400 years ago felt that night also that's exactly how we felt wow we are free we could leave you know uh and and in fact that night you know we have a famous uh, part of the Haggadah where we are asked where are you coming from and where are you going and so we were so where are you coming from from Lebanon where are you going to Mexico it was no longer where are you coming from from Egypt where are you going to Israel we're going from Lebanon to Mexico and the information was given, but all the technical legalities were still not uh, not not worked out until August. You know. I love that. Some of the people here may not know that that's, uh, I'm not sure, I think also Mor Moroccans do it, but I know it's a Syrian custom to say, where are you coming from, where are you going? Right. Nothing, don't do it. <laughs> no, no, yeah, 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 the Syrian customs to do it. So uh, we needed a, not passport, we needed what's called a laissez-passe. We needed the documents from Mexico to send them to the government of Lebanon. You know, all the yeah. legalities uh, as an asylum, as a refugee, so on and so forth. So it took several months despite of that. So it was almost a year since that article came out uh, until we left, we left Lebanon. And so in August, we left Lebanon. So it's interesting, though, if you think about it, you never actually lived in Aleppo yourself, and yet you were born in a Syrian community in, in Lebanon. You moved to a Syrian community in Mexico, and I'm assuming a Syrian school there as well, unless I'm wrong. Well, Aleppo, Syria was an overwhelming tradition. So our life is completely involved and, you know, wrapped up with, with the stories from Aleppo, traditions from Aleppo, the synagogues, the Sidurim, it says, tradition of Aleppo. So, uh, and yeah, you have Aleppo societies, Aleppo communities all over the world. It was a community that, because the Lebanese communities, as I said, was very, very small, even though they lived in Lebanon, but they still considered themselves Syrian. Look, when I applied for my uh, Spanish passport as a Sephardic descendant, so they wanted the government of Spain, part of the process, wanted my original birth certificate from Lebanon. Uh, and I told them it's impossible. How yeah, do you have it? <laughs> I, I had a copy. And so I'll go to Lebanon. So good <laughs> things. My lawyer in New York had a colleague in Lebanon. And he told them, please go look for it. He gave him the name, the year of birth and everything. They went. They went to the Ministry of the Interior. They could not find me. They could not find me. They could not find me. I was born there. They said, no, you were born in Syria. I said, no, I was not born in no. Syria. I was born in Lebanon. <laughs> Finally, the lawyer was astute enough to snoop around. And she saw that there is a special room. It's called Syrian refugees. And she found my birth certificate there. In Lebanon, I'm not considered Lebanese. I'm considered a Syrian refugee. And I was in that room, not in the regular Lebanese, Lebanese room. So it, it, it looms 
large in the life of a Syrian Jew. And yet you decide to leave your comfort zone, you leave your community, and you go to a very Ashkenazi yeshiva university. Yes and no. Even in Mexico, uh, the first school that I went, uh, it was a Syrian school. But uh, unfortunately, I have to be truthful, they were not serious in education. You know, coming from Lebanon, believe it or not, we were very serious. My father's school was a very, very serious, strict school in all aspects. Studies, uh, discipline, you know, it's the old-fashioned, uh, the old-fashioned way. I come to Mexico and uh, there was kind of libertinage, you know, the kids uh, were not well-educated, they were not well-disciplined, and that was, that was the Syrian school, so um, we couldn't take it, we could not take it, and my, so we decided, so there was only one school. And like I said, it was a high school, wasn't even an elementary school. I wasn't in, I was in seventh grade, still in mm -hmm. elementary school. And they put me there because I couldn't get into, because we got there in, in September, October, school had already started a month before and I did not speak Spanish. So they said, they so the school, the bigger schools would not accept me. They said, you know, learn Spanish and then come back. So my father said, where should I put them? I said, oh, you know, there is this Yeshiva Keter Torah, it's called. <laughs> said, put them there, you know, they'll learn Spanish. So we, we went there and um, again, uh, with no discipline, no education, nothing like that. It was, it seemed to me like it was a babysitting service for um, immature kids. We lasted there for several months. I went back home and my brother, he said, I'd rather stay home, self-teach, you know, self-teach myself and that, than, than being in that school. It's just uh, not learning anything there. So that's what we did. But then the next year, we were accepted to the Ashkenazi school called Diavne. It was what's called middle of the road, what's called today, you know, uh, modern, I orthodox. Call it modern orthodox, but it was a middle of the road religious school with good education. And so we, we went to that school. When I decided to, to go to Yeshiva University, it was only because I wanted to become a doctor. You know, even though we were in Ashkenazi school, but there were a lot of Sephardic students there and we, we had our tefillah and everything. And at home, we did the, our traditions and everything. Yeshiva University came about only because I wanted to become a doctor. And in Mexico, uh, the universities are open on Saturdays. So laboratories were on Saturdays. Tests were on Saturdays. And I was not going to compromise uh, was not going to. I said, I, I want to become a doctor, but I can do that. And the universities were not willing to, to, uh, to compromise either. And then I heard of this Jewish institution because they had a Shabbaton in Mexico, actually, when uh -huh. I was in 11th grade. And I heard about them. It's a Jewish university where you can become a doctor, a lawyer, or any other profession. And yet you can keep Shabbat and Yamim Tovim and holidays. So I said to my dad, I have to go there. And my father said, by all means. He inquired in the community, in the Syrian community in, in Brooklyn. And in fact, one of his students from Lebanon said, yes, I went to Yeshua University. It's a good school and you could send him there. That's how I ended up there. But then when I arrived there, to my good surprise and delight, there was a Sephardic department run by uh, Rabbi Dr. Solomon Gaon, who was the chief Sephardic rabbi of England, or before that, of the United Kingdom. Even though he was an Ashkenazi yeshiva, but there was a Sephardic department. So I learned in both areas. And that's how I became a rabbi and then became a doctor. And the rest is history, so to speak. Well, so then while you were there and there was this Sephardic department, was 
what were the studies like um, in terms of telling the Jewish story, um, in terms of involving different chachamim? What was the Jewish narrative you were hearing there? Was it different than what you had grown up with? Um, did you feel connected to it? Well, having been in an Ashkenazi school in Mexico, I already knew practically all the Ashkenazi traditions and tonations, melodies, tefillot. The only difference is that the Ashkenazi school in Mexico used Ivrit as a, they pronounced Hebrew the, the Israeli way. And where at Yeshiva University, I was surprised to see the, the heavy Ashkenazi accent and the Ashkenazi pronunciation. That was the only difference. But the melodies, customs, the minhagim, I already knew them. Uh, so I didn't feel, uh, it did not feel strange or foreign to me at all. The only thing, as I said, the pronunciation was heavily Ashkenazi, as they say. Uh, but in the Sephardic department, we had rabbis, hachamim, that used to come and teach us Sephardic halacha, Sephardic minhagim, and so on and so forth. So I learned both. The Ashkenazi students all only learned the regular. We had to learn both, the Ashkenazi and the Sephardic. Did you have to learn both? Or um, did you choose to be part of the Sephardic department because it was part of your story that you wanted to maybe learn more about? Uh, it was not forced upon me. I, I chose to do it. But uh, there was a good, uh, good stipend that they paid also. Funny that the, 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 the money came from a fund of an Ashkenazi uh, brothers, the Maybaum brothers, uh, who, uh, whose uh, lawyer and uh, estate executor uh, was a Sephardi. And he told them, he told them, you know, I want to, uh, to uh, use these uh, this funds to train Sephardic rabbi and Sephardic education. And they were thrilled. They said, yeah, of course, uh, you could use that. And uh, they dedicated that for the Sephardic uh, studies. And yeah, many, and Yeshua University was able to educate, raise, and train many Sephardic rabbis based on, on this scholarship, the Maybaum scholarship. I think that's something people don't necessarily know about. That's interesting. Correct. And, and I'm mentioning it because it's certainly to their credit, to their credit and the credit to, to to their lawyer who, whose name was Thomas Ryan, Thomas Ryan, who claims uh, his ascendancy was from Spain, from the conversos of Spain. And so, uh, yeah, so that's most of the Sephardic rabbis trained, were trained because of that scholarship and uh, they're given them the ability to be able to, to, to do that. And we had Sephardic students from all over the world, from Morocco, from Spain, from England, from South America, from Israel, from Canada. My smicha is signed also by Sephardic rabbis. Very interesting. <laughs> Thank you. No, that's something I didn't realize. So you still stayed within it and you didn't feel different because you had your community within there as well. Yes, correct. Correct. I, I, we had the Sephardi club. We had the international students club, which most of them were Sephardim anyhow. So yeah, we kept, we kept uh, doing our evenings, our lectures, our, you know, there was, there was a special course of Sephardic Hazanut also in, at Yeshiva University. And then later on, there was a special Sephardic Bet Midrash. So we had all what we needed. So we dabbled in both areas. So now you have this successful medical practice, successful rabbinate in New York. And again, pick up and move. Right. <laughs> so I want to get to this part because I think it's extremely important to kind of bring it back, as you call it also, but uh, uh, coming back to your home. Although now that we know what your mother said, I also want to hear how how you think that would have played out. <laughs> um, but tell us a little bit about why you felt it's important to come back to Dubai and what you feel the significance is of you being there. 
So my connection with the UAE really dates back since like 2010, when an American Jewish Ashkenazi businessman joined me when I did a Sephardic heritage trip to Spain. And uh, that's the first time that he met me. As, as I was explaining Sephardic heritage to this, the, the golden uh, era of Spain, the golden century, the intermingling of three Abrahamic religions, the disputations, but at the same time, the agreements between the Jewish and Arab Muslim philosophers, all of that, he was fascinated. And then, uh, you know, I would speak Arabic. I would explain the Spanish words that really came from Arabic. And I would try to compare sometimes the Quranic verses with the Torah verses. So he was fascinated. He came to, he said, he said, I, I, you need to meet the society and the leadership of the UAE. He says, I've been doing business this for over 20 years. You need to meet them. They'll be fascinated with you. You know, they, they, they're opening up society. And this was in 2010, 2011. I said, by all means, uh, you know, he said, okay, so whenever somebody comes from there to New York, I will try to make a meeting with you. So just I could meet you and so you could meet them. And I think you'll have a fascinating conversation, cultural, historical. I said, by all means. And so we had several of those meetings whenever a government official or a businessman or a member of the Emirati society would come, he would schedule a meeting and we would say, have coffee, talk, I will show them the synagogue, I will show them things. And that's how basically my connection with them. And uh, almost three years ago, he tells, so I, we became friendly together. We would meet, we would discuss things. Three years ago, he tells me, he says, uh, I would like you to come with me to, to Dubai. There is a very small community under the radar, but, but I want you to come. And I want you to bring also a Sephardic Sefer Torah to be dedicated in memory of Sheikh Zayed, who is the founding father of the UAE. I'm, I'm a Sofer, I'm a scribe. I, did not write the Sefer Torah, but I could finish it the last several sentences. I learned that too. So I said, by all means, so we, we got uh, a Sefer Torah, beautiful one from Israel, beautiful case. In fact, a movie just was screened. Yeah, I was just going to say, Amen, Amen, Amen. Exactly. So that's the movie is about this, this Sefer Torah. So uh, we did that. So we brought it to the UAE. We had the first ceremony at the Jewish community. They had a beautiful small villa together there were you know maybe few uh, dozens of people uh, that lived here and that's my first connection with the community i you know i made a rapport with them they kept in touch with me since then uh, and then seven eight months later we made the dedication in the palace of the crown prince in abu dhabi that was in uh, november december 2019 and uh, that's when i met the crown prince and we exchanged words and we reminisced about living in lebanon because he was telling me that he used to summer there every summer in the 60s and 70s oh that's that great that, that I did. and we practically are almost of the same age so we reminisced about uh, places where we used to go for ice cream or the movies or the cafes or you know things like that by now it's almost uh it's two years it's two years or so, uh, the second time and and then went back to to new york without any any thoughts or idea i i knew that there was a rapprochement between israel and the uae for more than a decade and that rapprochement was becoming more and more. And so when the Abraham Accords came about, I was not surprised. Uh, I knew it was happening, but just we're not sure exactly when it was going to happen. Right. So when that happened, then the government here uh, requested the Jewish community to uh, register itself as an official community of faith. Historically, in Arab countries, since uh, the advent of Islam, 
they recognize Judaism as a as a the people of the book as a monotheistic religion and therefore it's a religion dignified of becoming an official religion uh, for a Jewish community and there is religious autonomy to the Jewish community. They have batedin, uh, courts, marriages, and everything all handled by the Jewish community. Every issue of personal status was officially handled by the Jewish community, recognized by the country that they lived in. And that happened again from Morocco all the way to Iraq. They wanted uh, something similar here. And so, but they told them that they need to have a religious leader to be, uh, to be, uh, recognize that as a community of faith just the lay people cannot cannot be you know officially and so my name circulated amongst them they contacted me and i thought about it not for a long time and i said you know what that's a challenge that i would like to take i would like to close that circle i would like to kind of relive the good old days in lebanon and and show that uh, jews and arabs and muslims uh, can live together. And maybe we could uh, recreate the beautiful uh, golden era of Spain when there was peace and tranquility amongst uh, the three religions until, of course, some religious and political leaders came and, and created yeah, well. uh, <laughs> havoc and evil. I took that challenge and I believe, who knows, maybe, uh, you know, as a rabbi, as a religious person, I have to believe that there is certain, uh, certain God was putting me on a path to uh, maybe to recreate that and especially to create a beautiful Jewish community here, rapprochement, to really change the entire relationship between Arabs and Jews or Muslims and Jews, Islam and Judaism. And I felt a big responsibility. And I, many people told me, uh, you're the best suited person that can do that. There couldn't be anyone better. I'm sure there are plenty, but they put that in my mind. So, well, so. part of it is the language. Part of it is the mentality. Part. I mean, there's plenty of reasons. I love challenges and yeah, I understand the culture. I understand the religion. I have lived it. I speak the language, as you said, the culture, the, the aromas, the culture, that's all, you know, it's all part of my life. As I said, we were wrapped with that tradition of the Middle East. So I said, you know what, I'm going to do that. And so I took the challenge and I came, left my family there. And I came because I, I believe that we are at the crossroads of, of history. We are at a very important historical moment that is changing, not just will change, but it is already changing this entire region for the better. And so therefore I felt, uh, I felt I have to be there. I should be there and be part of that change and even drive the change even more. So do you, you said that in um, Lebanon, nobody would walk around with a kippah or with uh, anything. Do you in Dubai walk around with the kippah? Do you? I do. I walk around with the kippah at any time of the day and in any place of the city. I uh, never take it out, take it off. I feel very secure, very safe. To tell you this a little story, a week after I arrived in one of my meetings with government officials, I asked one of the ministers, I said, that maybe I need a, uh, a security detail, like a bodyguard or something. And he says, why did anybody say anything bad to you? So no, did anybody did anything to you? No, did anybody look at you bad? I said, no, nothing, everything is fine. He said, well, we don't think you need one. But if you want one because you'll feel much better, we will put you one. He says, but let me assure you that from the moment you got off that plane, we have been protecting you. And so uh, from that day on, I never, I, I stopped jaywalking, jokingly, but yes, no, I, so I do feel safe. I do feel protected. Uh, I, I do feel it's, uh, the, the, the rate of crime here is so insignificant, so low. I have not heard of any petty crime. There might be some big fraud crimes, but that's uh, that's different. You know, I, I feel safe. And everybody in the population that I speak with, Jew and non-Jew, they all tell me they feel very safe. There's no homelessness. The city is beautiful and clean. 
there is respect from, you know, there is, there is 202 nationalities living here and they all have to respect each other to live in peace and tranquility. And they do. Do I know that all the 10 million people that live here love me as a Jew or maybe not? And I'm sure in between them, you know, in between different nationalities, there's also certain, but you know, these are feelings that people keep inside, but they know that in the outside, they have to respect the other person. They have to respect their tradition. They have to respect their nationality, their ethnicity, their religion. And so that's, that's it's, a, it's a country built on mutual respect of all religions and all nationalities. Well, that's on the bigger scale, but we know, you know, two, two Jews, three synagogues. Within your community, are they mostly from Arab countries originally? Do they come together? Is so that's the, the beauty of the Jews, that they never change. So we, we have the same thing. We have the same thing here. <laughs> we have two Jews and three three different Minyani. Mm -hmm. But I guess that, that shows the richness of Judaism and the multi, uh, you know, colorful uh, side of Judaism. The people here are really mixed, almost 50-50% Ashkenazim Sephardim. But of course, amongst the Ashkenazim, you have ultra-Orthodox Hasidim like Chabad, you have modern Orthodox, you have completely non-Orthodox, you have some reform, egalitarian individuals we're talking about. And amongst the Sephardim, you have Syrians, you have Lebanese, you have Moroccans, you have Tunisians, you have, you know, uh, from England that originally they, they're from, uh, you have Italians that originally from Libya, Egyptians, so you have also uh, that multi-plurality. Uh, of, of Jewish uh, origins. Uh, but, uh, you know, we are all together in that sense. Uh, and we recognize that we want to be together. We have to be together. We are Jews at the end of the day. But eventually, I am sure, once the community grows and there is enough mass of different groups, each group, I'm sure they will, they will make their own synagogue and their own congregation. I guess people will flock to area where they feel comfortable, what they grew up with, the traditions, the melodies, and that's normal. Aside from everyone telling you uh, that this is a good fit for you, it sounds like it's also a good fit because of the different places that you've been and now meeting different people from different places and because you've dabbled in the Ashkenazi world and the Sephardi world. And so I wanted to just ask about one final thing about the Council of Sephardic Sages, because throughout the story, I've heard that your connection to your Sephardic roots has been strong throughout. So if you could tell us a bit about what the council is and how that connects you to your heritage. So yes, I, I dabble in all traditions because I have been in, in, in all, uh, in all you know, customs and, 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 and ways. You know, uh, the Middle Eastern is where I was born. Uh, and Mexico is the South American, Spanish, uh, uh, Hispanic tradition, customs, and, and culture. Uh, America is the, you know, the Western European uh, American uh, type. So yes, I could, uh, you know, they call me sometimes a switch hitter or the chameleon. <laughs> because I, yes, I could adapt and, 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 and I feel comfortable in all those areas. Of course, I could never shed away my Sephardic, my Middle Eastern upbringing, tradition, and culture, uh, which is the closest to my heart. Because you know that the, the formative year, ten years of my life, uh, from zero to ten, these are the most formative year in, in any person, where the, yeah. the psychic of the person, the culture, that what they like, what they feel comfortable. So it's with me, and and that is certainly something that is being not reawakened because it was always awake. But it's something that is being now, uh, how shall I say, nurtured, maybe nurtured more. 
though I feel very, very comfortable in Mexican and South American Spanish language, Spanish culture, the songs, the, the food. Uh, I enjoy very much, uh, you know, Mexican, Hispanic, Spanish food, the paellas, the tortillas, everything. And at the same time, I enjoy, uh, you know, the English is, has become almost my primary language, uh, you know, language, the American culture, the all of that. Uh, Hot dogs and hamburgers. hamburgers. Hot dogs <laughs> I don't like. That's a different that matter of taste, I guess. But hamburgers, I, I do eat French fries. Uh, I do eat. I don't know why they call them French fries, but but okay. But but yes, I so I yes, I'm able to adapt and adopt uh, all of those traditions. I feel comfortable with all of them. I mean, we have expats here. I speak with them in Spanish. I speak in French. I speak in Arabic, of course, to the locals uh, population. Uh, you know, I can dabble a little bit in Italian and Portuguese, and of course English. And so, you know, I'm I'm able to 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 communicate understand and relate to all of those cultures and ethnicities and nationalities. Thank God, you know. I was wondering if you could say something to future generations about their identity, whether they have claimed it all along and are holding on to it or whether they're reclaiming it. Would there be something you would tell them about their connection to their heritage? What I would say to them is what I say to myself, that uh, one needs to appreciate their own culture, their own tradition, live it, nurture it, enjoy it, and appreciate it and cherish it. But that doesn't mean that a person cannot appreciate and cherish other customs, other traditions, other cultures in a way that we could adapt and adopt the good thing of those cultures at the same time and live kind of a universal life, but with the basis of well, who we are. Uh, I, I believe strongly in the importance of keeping one's own traditions, one's own culture, as I said, live it, enjoy it, cherish it, and transmit it to the next generation. Because at the end of the day, that's who we are. That's what we were born, that's what we were part of, that's where we, we were transmitted and educated. And it's a beautiful, rich culture and tradition that it's worthwhile to keep it and to transmit it. Because again, it's part of our, if I may use the term genes, although it may not be, but it's, it's part of, of our makeup of who we are. Again, that doesn't mean that we cannot appreciate others and adapt some of those things and apply them to our life and cherish it also and respect it, certainly. So that, that, that's that's what I would tell anybody. I have seen some youngsters feeling, uh, if not embarrassed, but feeling detached from their parents' tradition or their grandparents, and they try to find themselves in many other traditions. Most of the time, I tell you, it fails. It really fails because it doesn't fulfill they're, they're who they are, that they're, if not their needs, their basic makeup from inside. And, and many of those, as I said, it fails. At the end of the day, it fails. Either they abandon the new culture that they took, the new tradition that they took, and they never go back to, to what they are, they want, or one becomes at an olden age. I have had so many of those people who, when they hear me speak, or when they hear me sing, or when they hear me tell the story, they start connecting. They feel, wow, I haven't heard this in 50 years, or from my parents, when I was a little young, my father used to take me to synagogue, and I heard and I abandoned it and it's so beautiful and I want to come back. So at the end of the day, either most of them come back or many of them, they're still lost souls, so to speak, trying to find things that will nurture their soul and their, their spirit. And that's why it's important to keep one's own tradition, live it, transmit it, flourish it, but at the same time, of course, respect, cherish and love other traditions and try to live as a universal person.
I think that's so important. And that's what we're all about, reclaiming our heritage and our identity within the greater Jewish mosaic, within the greater Jewish experience. Thank you so much. This was great. Um, really, I think we've covered so much today. Um, and we appreciate your time and your knowledge and everything else. So thank you very much for participating. And I'm sure we'll be speaking soon. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity. Uh, it was a, uh, how shall I say, a therapeutic session. Thank you for listening. Reclaiming Identity is produced and edited by Moshe Singer and executive produced by Dalia Arusi and Drora Arusi. Our theme music is by Vanessa Paloma. Be sure to check her out on Spotify. Be a part of the reclamation. Subscribe to the Reclaiming Identity podcast on our website, instituteofjewishexperience.org, on our Facebook page, Spotify, or Apple Music. Follow our programs on our website and the Institute of Jewish Experience channel on YouTube. And please help support these and other ASF Institute of Jewish Experience efforts by donating today.